When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. Uh, we are joined today with our super producer and uh, colleague in arms, Matt Madman Frederick. He takes that nickname from another show. The Madman. The Madman. Really? The Mad- uh, dare I ask, or should we just let it go with that? I believe it is his story to tell. Oh, I see. I understand. Which right. is odd, because I made it up just now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, today we are going to uh, kind of wade into some waters that Car Stuff normally doesn't wade into. Ooh, ben. Nice. And uh, we're going to talk about boats today, and a specific type of boat, and a really interesting bit of history, uh, as you might expect. I mean, we, we seem to find kind of the unusual angles to all this stuff, and, and we have found a, a really interesting one here, and we're definitely going to talk about it today. Uh, we've, we've touched on boats in the past. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about um, offshore racing in the past. we talked about yacht racing, mm-hmm. um, planes, Traveling the world by cargo ship. Yeah, exactly. We, we've, we've touched on uh, boat racing in the past and, and boats, but uh, we, we've never done a sailing episode. Uh, there's probably a good reason behind that because neither, <laughs> neither one of us are sailors. But um, we are going to talk about uh, something called the, the Danbury Boat Races today. And before we get to that, though, I would like to read a, a little bit of listener mail, if that's okay. Yeah, please do. All right. We don't normally do this either. This is uh, this is not on the, on the same subject, but I felt like it was a good time to do it. Mm. Uh, so this comes from Glenn Beck. And uh, Glenn is just returning from the Big Sky Rally and, uh, you know, the 2016 rally where he's out west. And we talked about that on this show as well. And oh, by the way, they raised more than they had hoped for in the uh, for Camp Sunshine. And they ended up raising one hundred and eighteen thousand seven hundred and eighty one dollars to date for that cause. So um, an excellent, uh, excellent showing there by everybody who donated to that cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sent along this uh, this note that says uh, the subject was a couple of good stories. And of course, I'm interested in that always. But this mm-hmm. is really interesting. He says, a fellow rally participant, his name is Mike, arranged for several of us Mustang drivers to join him and a friend named Rich Jr. for a breakfast after our start uh, from Kellogg, Idaho. Now, Rich Jr. brought along his father, who is, of course, Rich Sr., 
And he shared a couple of very interesting stories with them, uh, you know, at the breakfast there. He said he was retired. He's retired now, but he worked at Ford in the department that built their prototype cars. No way. You know, back in the day. So this yeah. is a you know, long time ago, and I'll tell you how long ago in just a moment. <laughs> uh, the first story is, and these are both very short. Um, in 1963, Rich and his team were busy building the first Mustang. And we're not talking about the mid-engine Mustang 1, but the very first of the 1964 body cars. They put in. They had just finished putting in a 14-hour day to get the car finished, and when they were finished, somebody suggested suggested that they go out for pizza and a few beers. Another one said, "Well, who's driving?" And they all simultaneously turned and looked at the Mustang, and decided that was the car they were going to take out for the for the pizza and beers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe they did that. I mean, first of all, taking a, pro, a prototype car out, you know, out in the town, I guess, but they did. Um, he says that at the at the pizza shop, the cr- a crowd gathered around the car, and a picture even appeared in the local newspaper. He said that they took a lot of heat over that one the next day at work, because uh, or soon after, whenever the uh, the picture appeared. <laughs> uh, it's like the early days of the spy photography, you know, like without yeah. the camouflage. Oh wow! Um, boy, I, I'll have to look that up. I'm going to see if I can find that. Yeah, photo. it's, it's got to be, be out there somewhere. There's some microfiche somewhere in some, uh, <laughs> you know, in some newspaper. The second story is, uh, well, of course, we know Lee Iacocca came up with the minivan idea while he was still at Ford. And he and Rich, he, well, Iacocca, along with Rich and his team, built a prototype of the minivan while they were at Ford. Well, Henry Ford II saw it and hated the idea. And he and Iacocca were already on the outs already. And this was, the you know, like the final straw. So he, uh, Henry II fired Iacocca. Iacocca left, but he took the minivan blueprints and the prototype itself with him to Chrysler. And the rest is history. That's how Chrysler came, you know, had came to have their yeah. first minivan is because of Lee Iacocca, who was working at Ford. Oh, wow. Man. Interesting, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's just two of the tales here from uh, from this uh, rich senior yeah. uh, over breakfast with uh, with Glenn and the guys from the rally. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, very cool. So it's, you know, right from a guy who was actually there. I, I love stories like that. You know, yeah. when you're talking to old timers about, you know, what they were up to during their working days, mm-hmm. uh, you find some interesting things. They come across some uh, interesting characters along the way. First-hand witnesses yeah. to history in the making, mm-hmm. you know? Yep, so thanks, Glenn, for sending that. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, always great to hear from you, Glenn. And, of course, long-time listeners, uh, you are probably familiar with Glenn. Now we're moving to something a little bit different. As as you said earlier, Scott, and I really appreciated your wade into new waters. Oh, thank line. you. That well, was pretty was, cool. I usually leave that stuff up to you, but, uh, but today I felt like I had a, a solid one. You felt the calling, yeah, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, so... We're going to start our story in the U.S. in the northeastern part in New England mm-hmm. in a in a place called Danbury, uh, specifically Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah, Western Connecticut at the uh, at well the former Danbury State Fairgrounds. Right. Yeah, uh, we have to say former because uh, as of what 1981, I believe mm-hmm. they, they they don't uh, hold that fair there any longer. It's it's moved somewhere else. Right, yeah. Uh, so the Danbury Fair uh, was a an annual exhibition that started in 1821. So there's a lot of history behind this. Yeah, it was a what an agricultural uh, agricultural fair at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so. And they didn't really have a schedule that they consistently stuck to uh, for the first couple decades. It wasn't until 1869 that they actually got their schedule of. Ten days every October, once a year. Yeah, and that was because a couple of uh, hat manufacturers mm-hmm. by the name of Rundle and White uh, stepped in and decided that they were going to make the Danbury Fair, uh, Danbury Fair rather, part of the Farmers and Manufacturers Society. And that's 
uh, it, it just grew the fair exponentially because oh, yeah. the fair took up 100 acres of what they would hope to, would be called uh, the Danbury Pleasure Park, mm-hmm. uh, which just I think it, it, later on it just became known as the Great Danbury State Fair. Right. Yeah. The biggest, best show in town. Uh, admission was 25 cents for adults, 15 cents for the kiddos. Uh, you would go here and if, if you've seen a state fair, then you you probably have a, a a pretty good idea approximately of what this was like. You would see a lot of local um, produce, right? Yeah. Fruits, probably some some locally made like wines or or uh, ciders, beverages. Uh, then they would also be selling hats, leather goods. Yeah, there's like the livestock. There's uh mm-hmm. you know people trying to grow the the largest tomatoes and watermelons and pumpkins and things like that, and you know all the stuff that goes along with the state fair plus the midway. Right. Plus, and this is my favorite part of, about fairs. They have things like demolition derbies. Mm-hmm. They have uh, you know the auto thrill shows. Mm-hmm. They have motorcycle stunt shows. Uh, one thing that they had here was car racing. Well, initially they had horse racing. Right. Then they moved on to um, you know, midget car racing, stock car races on, on a small dirt track that they had on the fairgrounds, like right. a, a quarter mile track. Right. Around 1932. Yeah. 1932. And so they've been doing that for a while. And then, uh, right around, I, I think it was like in the 1940s when the guy that, uh, you know, we'll get to, uh, the guy that runs the place in just a moment. Sure. But, uh, right around 1940 is when it switched hands, when, uh, when there became an owner of the, of the fair, one single person. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about him later, but, um, Moving past that, about 10 years after this guy took over, uh, in 1950, something very unusual happened at the Danbury Fairgrounds and something that only existed for one year. They only ran for one season. Right. We're uh, putting on our mist in history caps today, my friends, because let's see, how would they have pitched this, do you think, Scott? If we could what if a little bit? Oh, yeah. How uh, would you, how would you, Tell the uh, the decision makers at the fair because now there's one owner, right? Yeah. Uh, but there were easily around a thousand or more people who worked on this thing. Yeah. Well, there's a thousand employees by uh, by what year was it? Eighteen ninety five. Yeah. So it's a, it's a huge fair. It's probably grown you know even bigger than that Leaps at that bounds, point. Maybe yeah. let's say the twelve hundred or something like that. Sure. So how do you uh, how do you get um, you know, well, they're hoping to get 100,000 visitors or, you know, right. even more than that to come through this place. Well, I don't know, Ben. I mean, what do you, what do you do? You just, you, I guess you put posters all over town, you know, sure. proclaiming what you're, what you're about to do because it's, it's sort of, I, I'd say it's revolutionary, really. I mean, it's, we see versions of this now in, in the modern times. I mean, we see, mm-hmm. um, like with jet boat racing where they put those giant V8 engines into small boats and mm-hmm. they flood, um, you know, low dugout trenches in a field somewhere that's that's sort of like this but what do you do do and you tell them that you're going to create the nation's first aquaway right you heard it correctly folks the nation's first aquaway meaning a marine racetrack yeah so in on the grounds where there was formerly the the dirt track the the car racing track yeah which which is an oval like a, a quarter mile oval track they decided they were going to flood that. So they called it the former horse racing mm-hmm. track. They were going to flood that. So they had to build walls on the edges. You know, I think they looked like tile walls to me mm-hmm. uh, that they built. And they were going to somehow <laughs> keep water in this track area for uh, deep enough for boat races. They were going to run, uh, you know, like these little hydroplane type boat races. Mm-hmm. Um, 
an, an amazing undertaking, really, when you think about it. Just to think about the logistics of doing something like this. And they're going to keep that for at least one season. I think they had plans to go farther than that, but right. we'll find out what happened later. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, in This was uh, early in 1950, so May 20th of 1950. It was a Saturday. That was the very first, you know, the, the opening night of these uh, of these speedboat races at the Danbury Fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as you said, it, the track's uh, about a fourth of a mile Long, oval, 30 feet wide, three feet deep. Yeah, three feet deep. So they're going to keep three feet of water on a dirt racetrack. Now, that's, I mean, I'm sure they're continually adding water to this thing, you know. Yeah. From, you know, not only evaporation, but also, you know, just water soaking in and you know, seeping in. They did this for a full season, Ben. They, they, they did this every Saturday for a full season. So it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. And not only, not only did they do this, they decided that they were going to build their own type of boat to yes. race in, in these races because it's a it's a it's an unusual course. It's very small, right. uh, very very narrow, as you can imagine. Most boats aren't going just aren't going to be able to fit in that. Yeah, what do we say? It was uh, thirty feet wide. Yeah, I think. thirty was, feet wide. So a quarter mile around, thirty feet wide, three feet deep. The depth really doesn't matter because these boats run so shallow. Right. Uh, but you can imagine what we're talking about, except the or maybe you can't. I don't know. They're very small boats. They're about ten uh, what ten feet five inches in length. And the beam, which is the the widest part of the boat, is about fifty five inches. So mm-hmm. you get two or three of these side by side on, on the course, and that's all the width you've got. Really, it's not. It's not. Uh, there's not a lot of elbow room, I, I guess, in this case. Um, right. Yeah. The, these are these are tiny one person outfits. Yeah, and they were built by the fair's um, uh, carpenter, the master mm-hmm. carpenter at the fair, and his name was Kohler. I forget his first Harold name. Harold Kohler. Harold Kohler. That's the guy. And uh, so the, the owner of the fair commissioned him to design and build these boats, and he did. I, I, I think he probably had others that helped him. I don't think he built every single one of them. No, it's too many boats. Yeah, we we have discussed, we didn't really discuss how many there are either. Yet. Yeah. Um, there's some speculation that there were as many as 29, mm-hmm. but as few as 21. So uh, you can see there's going to be some uh, you know some number. Uh, discrepancies here as we as we talk about this, and we'll just be upfront about this. That you know, from different sources, you hear different things. Sure. And the speculation is that there were between twenty one and twenty nine. Most of them were wooden hull boats. However, yeah, there were two that were fiberglass, mm-hmm. and one of the two fiberglass boats still exists. There's only a few still around, and that's why we're talking about them today because they had a, uh, a reunion recently. Mm-hmm. In two, and re- by recently, I mean two thousand ten. And I just kind of stumbled across these these news items and pulled together some info from here and there and yeah. found out about this thing. But in 2010, uh, three of them came together uh, on one one lake to uh, to you know just kind of get together and race again against each other for the you know the first time in 60 years that they've been together. Right, and we need to emphasize that part, Scott. They were still in racing condition. They had been kept up. This is boat 24, 28, and 38, right? Yes. And there's another one that is supposedly seaworthy that is in Wisconsin somewhere. And uh, we'll get to where these all disperse right, to right. later. But there's one more that didn't make it to this event that we're talking about in, uh, I think it was in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, the lake on Massachusetts. And they said the only other reunion that these boats have had was back in the 1980s. And and that's significant because, well, I guess maybe not as significant as the 2010 event. Because in the 1980s, that was just after they were kind of rediscovered, right? Right. Because we, we said that it was only one season, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's so many – we're skipping over so much here. But um, there was only one season, so the 1950 season. And after that, they were they were just put into dry storage. They were, they were put mm-hmm. away in some warehouse on the fairgrounds, you know, um, in a, a shed somewhere, a big building. 
But the amazing part is that the owner of the fair and, of course, the carpenter that, that worked on these things, mm-hmm. they had an interest in keeping them in good shape, in good condition that whole time, thinking that maybe someday we're going to you know run these again or there's another plan for these maybe. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, especially because there's such unique craft. You know, yeah. they're, they're handmade... Um, we should talk a little bit about the specs. I know you mentioned the beam and and the fact that they were building these watercraft specifically for 
this track, right? Yeah, because they're very, very small. Again, ten and a half or yeah, ten feet five inches long. And I already have some questions regarding uh, performance and equality because you know the thing about racing is that ideally the rules make it such that whether we're talking about uh, a car, a truck, or even in this case a speedboat, they're supposed to all be very close in performance. Mm-hmm. But some of the engines were different on these. And then, you know, the material was different in a couple with the fiberglass. So, like, these engines might be 44 cubic inch inboard Crossley engines or 48 cubic inch Well, the difference is the 44 was a a tin block. Yeah. And the 48 cubic inch was a A, uh, cast iron. Yeah, an iron block. And it was more reliable. I guess the tin block was unreliable. And they... Uh, not quickly, but they, they decided, well, we're going to start swapping some of these out. And I think that's mm-hmm. what they did. So I don't know if they all eventually shifted over to 48 or okay. if they had a mix of the two, but they also had, um, different classes. Now I, mm-hmm. I, I saw somewhere that, um, this was actually a, an, an American powerboat association or APBA sanctioned event. So, uh, they ran under APBA official rules. And I think that, you know, their, their class designation, I don't know if it was because of the, uh, um, the fiberglass hull or because of the wooden hull or if it was because of the engine size or what it was, but they had different classes. So, uh, races would be, you know, anywhere between eight or 10 laps in length, depending on the, the class that you were in. Right. The APBA yeah. class. So, this, this whole thing is really fascinating. I mean, there's, there's so much about it, like, and it was so, so temporary. It only ran again for that one season in 1950. Yeah. Uh, starting in, uh, and I've got the, uh, I guess the opening, uh, poster or bill that was posted. For yeah, this, this is so cool. It really is. I got a printout in front of me and it, in a big, you know, bold red letters. It said speed, it says speedboat races on the Danbury Fair water course, the first water speedway of its kind in the United States An opening night, Saturday, May 20th, 1950. And then every Saturday night thereafter. So, um, you know, the grandstands, for instance, would open at 7 PM. The time trials would begin at 7:30, and then the races would start at 8:30, And, there were seven events, you know, over the, over the, uh, the course of the evening and they would have, you know, nationally known pilots. They had, of course, these specially built race boats. They were really fast. They were thrilling, mm-hmm. I guess, from what I've heard. Um, just really a, an interesting thing. And I was wondering how, how rough do you think that that water would be after one lap around this thing? It's gotta be, uh, I mean, right. The, uh, you know, just the action of the, the wakes, you know, going back and forth between those, uh, those tiled walls. And you can get, you can get a, feel for that in some of the pictures of the races because there are pictures available online uh, very what, few one very few a handful one thing i forgot to mention that we that i'm sure you guys are dying to hear how fast did these go they went in excess of 40 miles an hour which may not sound like that much but when you consider the tight quarters and you consider the tiny like again the tiny size of these boats that's Pretty fast. Yeah, these single-seater boats that you're, I mean, you're right on the water. And, you know, the guys that own them now, they say, you know, I can, I've, I've pushed this one up to 50 miles an hour on the lake before. But he said, when you're going 35, it feels like you're going 60. When you're going, you know, 45, yeah. it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour. It's just, it, it's an unbelievable sensation of speed when you're that low and in such a small loud craft. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they say is it's a lot like, um, it's a lot like go-karts on the water. You know, in that, in that yeah. same sense, you know, it's, it's very agile. It's, it's not very smooth at all. It's a rough ride. It's, uh, it's abrupt. It's, uh, it's loud. It's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. There's so much sensation, uh, to these boats that again, you don't have to go, you know, faster than 40 miles an hour to feel like you're really, really traveling fast. And of course, when you get into that tight, 
you know, the confines of that tight course. Yeah. And with other boats all around you, I can't mm-hmm. imagine what that was like. And some of these photos, you know, there's, well, I see at the, the most, any and any photo that I can find is four boats together. Right. Yeah. But there are shots of it um, of these boats at the uh, I guess the the launching dock. Right. As um, the as the pilots are prepping. Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of holding them back, getting ready to start the boats. And we'll tell you about that in a second too. But they're holding the boats back, and there's more than four in a row there. So uh, th- there's a chance that there were as many as six or seven on the course at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't mention this yet, Ben, but these boats don't have any gears. So, oh yeah, no um, clutch. Yeah, there's no clutch in these, so they just go. Yeah, so you, you know, you're waiting at the dock to start. Uh, they power it up, and that's it. That's the start of the race. Uh, yeah. it's, so it's it's off and on, and that's about it. Of course, you got throttle control, right? You know, for for speed variation, but uh, there's no neutral, there's no reverse, there's uh, you just on or off, and that's it. And these are these are time trials. Oh, and one thing. I want to take a quick side note here, listeners. Several of you probably caught this. Earlier, we said that originally this fair ran for 10 days every October, but then we said it, this, the Danbury water racing, ran for a season, which was every Saturday starting in May that year. And that is because the fair expanded. And yeah. we, we should point that out. Yeah, sure. And, you know, when they're running the midget cars or the stock cars, the, right. it's uh, the same thing. You know, you go, you go to the fairgrounds in order to watch the, the races on Saturday. Right. And yeah. it's just the local track, really, at that point. Mm-hmm. And so the fair is not operational, but the track is. And we, we have to ask, Scott, what what happened? You know, because they put these they they put these boats in dry storage for, what, three decades? But, but it's not like they were stowed away and forgotten because employees for the fair were still taking these out, performing regular maintenance, turning over the engine and stuff. I find that incredible. You know, I mean, we, we said earlier that they had a, an interest in keeping them in good shape. And, and yeah. I find that amazing that, that that they would, you know, have employees oil the machines, ma- you know, mm-hmm. maintain them so that, you know, they were in relatively good shape. I don't know if they were even, you know, water worthy at that, you know, after 30 years, probably not. And mm-hmm. seals dry out and things like that. But, sure. Um, but but mechanically, they were sound. And so I guess what happened was they realized that it just wasn't the moneymaker that they thought it was going to be. And it was probably very difficult to keep the water in the track. You know, they probably were just continually battling that yeah. uh, that, that situation. So um, I think they just decided that it was a, a better fit for them to, uh, you know, go with the car racing again for the 1951 season, which is what they did. They, they removed the aquaway you know, all the walls and all that, and uh, and they put down a paved course. This time they made it a little bit bigger. I think they went to a third of a mile mm-hmm. and a paved course, a paved oval, and uh, then resumed stock car and midget car racing. And they did that for decades again. It's just, if we can imagine, you know, the logistics involved, to your point, are probably what sank the race, you know, just having to continually support that sort of infrastructure. Oh, I'm sure it did. Yeah, it, it can't be easy. It's got to be a, a, a pretty big drag on the uh, on the staff there, you know, to have to, uh, and I don't mean to drag as far as like it's, you know, a task they don't want to do. I mean, it's like it, it takes a lot of man hours to do something like that, to, yeah. to put something like the, that together and then to maintain the track and to maintain the machines. And because, uh, you know, th- these these boats are there. It's, it's part of the property. It's part of the uh, um the whole thing. I mean, the whole show is is run right there from the uh, from the fairgrounds. It's like all um, all under that umbrella. I don't. Maybe I'm I'm 
over-describing this, I think, because it it makes sense. It's like instead of having people bring in their own individual race cars to race in the track, yeah, they've got these vehicles that stay there at the track. And, of course, you know, they have teams that come in and race them, but uh, they're the property of the fair. And now for a interesting question, or at least I, I think it's interesting. Listeners, I hope uh, I hope it interests you as well. Uh, Scott, this question is for you and for everybody out there listening. Would you race in one of these? Would I race in one? Yeah. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah. I think, especially in comparison to several other types of races that were around this time, mm-hmm. stock cars, midgets, etc., uh, it's strange. I know it only ran for one season, so we don't have a good sample size, but it seems somewhat safer. <laughs> yeah. We didn't hear of any you know, tragedies happening right. at, at this fair or anything Right. Like so that. this wasn't something that got shut down due to a catastrophe or an accident. No, it wasn't like the boats were launching themselves into the crowd or something. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It's just that, that the fans seemed, uh, the fan base for stock cars and the profit margin for stock cars seemed more consistent and reliable. Yeah, that's probably it. I'm sure there was a lot of interest in this, and I'm sure they had a regular crowd that came. Sure. But, but I don't think that it was quite the draw, as you say, you know, for uh, you know, for the stock cars and the midget racing. But you would you would race, and I would race as well. Oh yeah, have you ever rented a small boat like this? I've I've, I've done this at uh, resort locations before, uh-huh. at like uh, let's see, Silver Lake, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, where the sand dunes are, out on the west side of the state. Uh, they used to. I don't know if they still do or not, but they rent little boats like this, uh, single seaters. Maybe it's two seat. I can't remember, but very small and. What's great about it is that, you know, they're not like tethered to a track. You know, you don't have to remain in one simple little area. You got yeah. access to the whole lake. You can go anywhere you want. Uh, if you get a couple of people that rent them, you can do some, uh, some wake jumping with, you know, the other oh, boats. That's cool. yeah. and, they're, and they're fast. It's not like they're, you know, like powered with electric motors or anything. They've got a pretty fast outboard motor on them. And there's a few places around, at least around in the States that you can still do this kind of thing. I don't know if Silver Lake still does it or not, mm-hmm. but because I was, you know, 25 years ago, maybe even more. Um, but man, it's a lot of fun. It's so much fun. I, I had an uncle that would uh, race, race boats like this um, semi-professionally, I guess, probably in the APVA um, on Lake Orion in Michigan. And uh, it's, he and his kid, he was an engineer at, at General Motors. He had a blast doing this type of thing. He talked about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Had trophies, had, um, you know, photos of, you know, the small little, um, I don't know, kind of like uh, sea flea type boats that, you know, they put these enormous outboard motors on. And uh, just have a blast. I don't know how fast it would go, but it was it was really fun. You know, I have not I have not had the pleasure yet. It's officially on my bucket list. When I was uh, when I was much younger, there was a thing that some amusement parks would do where they would let kids and adults uh, rent in kind of an enclosed space. Uh, watercraft that were essentially like tiny bumper cars. Oh, yeah. You remember those? Yeah, sure. I think there's still some uh, some places around that do that. Bumper boats, I think is what yeah, they call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So I had, I had had that experience, which I think is totally different. One time I got in an escapade on a jet ski that did not belong to me. I think the <laughs> statute of limitations has passed. Uh, this <laughs> These were back in high school days. Was uh, this a stand-up jet ski or was it one that you sit on? Oh, it was all, it was all classy, man. It was, it was, you sit on it and you have the, uh, you have to tie the, um, key to your wrist mm-hmm. so that if you don't fall off, I fell off several times in the course of stealing this vehicle. I think, I think that's, oh, <laughs> stealing the vehicle. I see. It's borrowing if they, you give it back at the end. <laughs> I see. You know, I was, what I was thinking was, uh, if it was long enough ago, it would be the original, 
Um, the, the official jet ski, the, uh, oh, Kawasaki, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, the stand up ones. Those. those are, uh, those are a lot of fun too. Those are cool. Yeah, they're really tough to, to, you know, handle the first time you try it, but uh, man, they're, man, they're fun. Those, personal watercraft are a blast. And this is kind of like, it's a version of, I guess it is a personal watercraft, but it's a different type of personal watercraft. You'd have to see the photos to understand the type of boat we're talking about. And Ben, before we get too much farther, cause I want to yeah. talk about what happened to the boats eventually. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, the owner of the fair that we didn't get to mention. Oh, Leahy. Leahy. Yeah, yeah John Leahy. He owned the fair from the 1940s until he died in 1975 and he left behind, and I know this because I, I found some, uh, some official court documents later, mm. uh, from 1991, but he, he left behind an estate that was valued at $7,213,604. So he did all right with the fair, uh, over those years. And I think that there was a lot more to it than that because I saw documents that had numbers in the, like in the $25 million range when they sold, when the family sold off their interest in the fair. Wow. Which was a little bit later, but I, I guess once, uh, once he died in 1975, the, the whole organization just kind of fell into disarray. And the last day of the fair was October 12th of 1981. And they say in 1981, 400,000 people attended the fair that year. So it was still, uh, still very popular. Uh, mm-hmm. But the organization itself was crumbling because the guy that was at the top was really keeping everything together. Um, he was no longer there, and it just sort of crumbled from the top down. And, and it's sad. I mean, it's really sad. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, the fair in 1981, so just maybe, what, six years later? Yeah. Uh, six or seven years later, uh, they decided they were not going to uh, not going to hold the fair anymore. They shut it down, which was a very sad day for a lot of people. And uh, they erected a mall, I think, on that location. Right. There's the uh, the Danbury Fair Mall, uh, which uh, I don't know, Ben. That seems that's terrible. That you know, there's a, a a shopping mall now on the on the property that was this this um, well, what they thought was going to be called uh, the Danbury Pleasure Park. You know, back in the yeah. 1860s, yeah. But, but it was the site of a uh, a very famous and and um, well. By all accounts, a lot of fun state fair for many years. Yeah, it was iconic. One of the other things that you might hear of, especially the folks who are familiar with this, uh, those, those of us out in the Danbury or Connecticut area, uh, Scott, we have to mention that another thing that made this fair so famous were these gigantic statues yeah. of Paul Bunyan and Uncle Sam uh, and – there, there, there were more than the, just those. Those are two of the big ones. But they're like 38 feet tall. Uh, that at least Uncle Sam was. And when the fair was closed down, a lot of these were purchased by you know local businesses and continued, uh, continued on. Yeah, right? like well, like Uncle Sam went to the Magic Forest in in Lake George, New York. And I think the other one, the Paul Bunyan mm-hmm. statue, which is uh, there's there's more to the Paul Bunyan. Yeah. Story, but the Paul Bunyan uh, eventually. This is a, a weird twist on this. The one from the fair was painted like a hippie, and then moved to the Max Yeager's farm, where where they held the uh, held the Woodstock um, uh, music festival back in 1969. Uh-huh. So that one has uh, kind of a strange history to it. But the Paul Bunyan figure itself was was mass produced by the company. So there's more than one of this Paul Bunyan figure out there in the world somewhere. I don't know how many of them they made. But they uh, they sold these identical sculptures to tire shops and muffler shops, and so sometimes when you see this Paul Bunyan character, it's actually the uh, the muffler man. Uh, so I think a lot of people can picture what the muffler man looks like right, because yeah. they, they have that uh, that giant statue of what in some cases was Paul Bunyan, in some cases is the muffler man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. It's 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 funny to find out where these things end up. 
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Ed, this is something that... the. This is something that we have seen before happen to things that are considered Americana or pieces of American history. Maybe the property values in a place go up. That's what happened in Western Connecticut. And you see a lot of bigger businesses moving in, which, you know, it has its pros and its cons. Well, because sure. I mean, it's, it's good for the economy when that stuff happens, but then also – you know, you're losing a piece of history. Well, yeah, that's and that's what I meant by, you know, it's 
kind of sad to hear that, you know, a mall moved in there. It's just, I, I guess, the nostalgia part of the whole yeah. thing. You know, that, uh, that, you know, there was a site of this, uh, this really fun fair and a lot of people have some, uh, you know, great family memories there and now it's a, a shopping mall. That's all I meant. I didn't mean that, you know, it's, it's bad for the local economy or anything like that. I wasn't trying to get any political stance oh, no, on the no, whole no, thing or, mean, yeah. or anything like that. I just mean that, um, you know, a lot of people have some really good memories and you'll hear some, you know, great stories that people tell online about, you know, going to the Danbury Fair and, you know, uh, I met my wife there or, you know, stuff like that. You know? I was, yeah, I guess I, I feel bittersweet about it uh, because there's an article from 1981 in the Times, in the New York Times, that talks about um, the last uh, hurrah of the fair mm-hmm. in October 4th. What, the final 10 days? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it reads almost like an obituary, yeah. you know. But uh, that is not the end of the story for the Danbury Racers. As a matter of fact, we have a little bit of a potential mystery. Yeah, uh, well, so, you know, 1981 was the last year of the fair, and they knew that they were going to have to get rid of a bunch of their assets. I mean, everything, you know, right. all the rides and the statues, uh, the whatever, buildings, whatever they could get rid of. Right? The boats so, as well. So the boats, yeah, the boats are in uh, in storage, in dry storage. And uh, they all went up for auction, or at least 19 of the boats went up for auction. So Again, this is a, this is already a mystery because if there were if there were twenty one to twenty nine of these as we as we have heard, mm-hmm. uh, why did only nineteen of them go up for auction? Maybe at that time that's all that were that were there. I don't. That could be the case. Yeah. But we do know that um, of the nineteen, nine of them were sold at auction for twenty five hundred dollars each. So they all went for kind of a, a flat price per boat of twenty five hundred dollars to different people. It wasn't mm-hmm. like one person bought all of them. And uh, no one, ever, no one really remembers what happened to the other ten boats. They don't know if they were eventually sold. They were just uh, destroyed. They don't know if you know somebody just uh, carted them away after the auction. Mm-hmm. No one knows what happened to the other ten. You know, and that's not saying what what happened to the other nine that weren't in the original auction or, or ten that weren't in the original auction. So um, already a mystery there. And we said that you know there were there are four that are known to be seaworthy today, as, as far as they know, anyways. You know, these people that uh, got them together. The last time, I think it was a group called the the Bay State Woodies, and that is uh, the Massachusetts chapter of the Antique and Classic Boat Society, or ACBS. Mm-hmm. And you can look up some information on their site if you want to to find out, um, you know, what happened on that day, or you know what you know the occurrence. Uh, I guess the, the bringing together of the original uh, Danbury Racers and see yeah. you know what it was all about on that one day. But um, and they'll also give you some hints about you know where the other boats are because I. I I have so many questions here about the, the number of boats remaining. I, I thought I had it down to either they're either nine total or twelve total, but then there's that other, you know, hidden bit of information that says that there might have been ten that never went to auction. So that kind of throws right. a, a wrench in the whole thing. But I guess there are, there are supposedly three in Connecticut, two in New Hampshire, and then four in Wisconsin. Doesn't mean they're all, you know, seaworthy. It just means that they know that those went there in 1980. Right and they don't know where they are now. I mean, of course, the ones that, that were brought out uh, this year were from different places. I think um, one of the owners that came out for uh, the 2010 event was from Connecticut. Another one was from New Hampshire. And then uh, another one, oh, again, a, a second second one from Connecticut. So uh, two out of the three were from Connecticut on that day and one from New Hampshire. And then they knew of the one in Wisconsin, but the, the owner of the Wisconsin boat didn't make it to the event. So. Um, it's, it's just, it's all kind of a mystery to where these are, but I, I like stories like this, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you take a look at the, the boats online, if you look at the photos of, uh, you just search Danbury racers, 
you're going to find, um, you know, boats that are examples of, of what all the boats look like, really. They have a distinctive style to them, a distinctive look. So if you ever run across one of these things, you know, at a boat, at a boatyard somewhere, you know, someone who has, um, antique or wooden boats on the property and don't really know what they have, uh, you know, this would be yeah. something interesting. It's a piece of history, really. And I, I think there's a, a bunch of them out there, maybe still, that, uh, um, or just undiscovered, or maybe you know, no one knows what they have. They're just sitting in a garage or a shed, you know, that uh, their their grandfather left them. Or- right, exactly. That's also something I'm wondering. This is where you come in, ladies and gentlemen. If you have access to or know of someone who has a like unidentified, pretty small looking boat, yeah, single seater, looks like a race boat. Yeah, could be wood. Uh, it's not likely fiberglass. Because, it's overwhelmingly likely to be wood. Yeah, because the, the fiberglass one, the, the one that showed up to this event, there's one that was fiberglass, number 38. Mm-hmm. There were, there was one other one, and I think that one was destroyed. They know that it was, uh, it was, I, can't, I think it was a fire maybe or something. Mm-hmm. It was destroyed. So they do know that that one is out of the mix, but the rest of them I think are wooden. And again, they have a very unusual design. You'll, you'll be able to, to spot them immediately if you know what to look for. Yeah. So, Give it, give it a look. If you, if you have an inkling that there might be something like that, we, we love to know about it because these boats are out, are out there somewhere. The, the odds are also overwhelmingly likely that there are a few people probably in the United States right now who have access to something like this and maybe are not aware. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what, Ben? I, I just wanted to mention this too. Yeah. On, this, uh, on the front of this uh, this poster that I'm looking at here uh-huh. for, for the original season, uh, the first race, really, uh, it has the admission prices. You want to hear what the admission was to get into the Danbury races for the first race? For the Danbury races specifically, yes. Yeah, because the fare was a quarter. Yeah, the fare was a quarter. This is uh, oh, it's a little bit more than I guess for this. Um, children under five were free, of course. It seems right. like that's yeah. usually the way. Uh, children under twelve years old were forty two cents. Plus eight cents tax, so it's fifty cents for them to get in. Curse you, Uncle it's, Sam. It, it's funny how they how they <laughs> have this, right? And adults, eighty three cents with seventeen cents tax, so it was a dollar for adults to get in. And then after that, but this is the thing, like this is unheard of now. After you pay that admission fee of either fifty cents or a dollar or free if you're young yeah. enough, I guess, uh, there were no other charges. Now you'd have to buy your own food, of course, but the but by no other charges, they mean free you park. Get, you get to you got to park for free. There was a free race program that went along with mm-hmm. it. Of course, all the entertainment that you could absorb, yeah, that's free. Yeah, <laughs> not really. I guess that's that's what costs you a buck. Well, it was an all night all night thing too because it starts at seven. That's when the doors open, the grandstand opens, and then they do the time trial seven thirty. And then after that, uh, that's when the race begins at eight thirty. I wonder if they raced under the lights or if it was uh, if it was just simply until dark or something like that. Because uh, um, later in the year, it Let's would be getting it would be May. You know, well, this is May, but as they got later in the racing season, right toward it, the autumn, it yeah, would, the sun, yeah. yeah, yeah, they might have had they might have had lights. I bet that had a really cool look to it. And that would have been really cool. Of course, you know, you're sitting in the a, uh, a state fairgrounds grandstand, so mm-hmm. it's you know concrete and wood, and you know probably bench seats if I had to guess. Uh, man, it just, it was probably a, a really fun evening out. This landlocked watercourse is constructed directly in front of the Big Danbury Fair concrete and steel grandstand. The shape of the race course forces the daredevil pilots to drive with the highest degree of skill, creating excellent competitive racing. I think, I mean, 
I I love these older ads. Nice know? work, Ben. Oh, hey. You should do the uh you should have done the radio ads for that, but uh a little before your time. <laughs> it was it was a bit before my time. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably before your dad's time even. <laughs> huh. Well, you know, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Nineteen fifty he would have been a youngster. He uh he listens to this show, and I will not compromise <laughs> his personal information. I, I understand, but uh, but you know what, um, man, what a, what a time to be in Connecticut, huh? To be able to see something like this, I, oh, I would yeah. have loved to have seen something like this. I, I like stuff like this, anyways. I mean, they're mm-hmm. racing of all types, but you know, when it's on a, a tight circuit like this, it's almost like, as we said earlier, like go kart racing on water. Yeah, it had to have been fun to watch. It just had to have been a, a really like a. An action-packed, a, a thrill-packed race. And, you know, this also makes me wonder what other current local races are out, not just, you know, like local racetrack races, but what other maybe unorthodox or slightly, uh, slight, I don't want to say weird or yeah. out there, but, you know, a, a, a step away from the mainstream yep. kind of races are out in the U.S. or abroad right now. We yeah. had uh, years ago, we did an unusual races podcast mm-hmm. and we dug into uh, races all around the world that were anything but the normal, yeah. anything out of the ordinary. And I don't re- even recall what was in that podcast, but there was a big mix of stuff. I mean, oh, yeah, uh, really, really strange stuff like Cheese wheel racing, yeah, and, yeah you the know, downhill like, cheese wheel chase, <laughs> yeah, stuff which like is that. way more dangerous than it sounds. I, I hope we mentioned that in that podcast. Now that I think about it, because it was, uh, it, yeah, but there's some, some really interesting, fun things in that podcast. So, and it's old, so you know, be kind if you listen to it again. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's boy, probably, probably back in the high speed stuff days. Oh man, probably. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting races out there. I'd love for you know some fans to write in and and tell us about stuff. Sort of like this, you know, like one-off type stuff that happens around the U.S. that we just don't hear about mm-hmm. because, you know, because it's a local thing. Absolutely. And with that, we are going to uh, we are going to head out. I, I don't know if we're going to get into a speedboat race when we leave the studio, but. I doubt it. I know, but it, it's cool to dream. It is cool to dream. <laughs> yeah, I, I, man, you know, okay, last thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I promise. Sure. (laughs) We did do that podcast a long time ago on, I think it was, can you build your own boat? Yeah. And some of the, some of the, uh, the craft we talked about, in fact, I I know the ones that I was, you know, most favorable towards were the, uh, were the small hydroplane type boats like this. Mm -hmm. I would still love to build something like this, but I just, I don't really have a place to put it anyways. I mean, like to, to race it, because there's not a whole lot of lakes down here that are, you know, easily accessible. Not like when I was up in Michigan, they were everywhere, mm-hmm. or in Minnesota. Um, but, yeah, it would be so much fun to build build and drive something like this. and Or maybe even find one of the original Danbury racers, huh? I mean, that's like, you know, finding a, a diamond out in a field somewhere or something. You know, it's a, it's right. a, it's a rare, extremely rare find. Right. It has happened before. Yeah. But that's about all you can say. About yeah, it. I mean, and again, you know, if we get enough listeners that are looking for this, these types of boats, maybe they'll start turning up. You never know. Heck, man, while we're talking about local races, you know what this makes me think of is uh, the Soapbox Derby that Atlanta holds at, at the street right outside of our office. Dude, we could totally do that. Yeah, we could build the car here and, and walk it over to the race course. It's yeah. That, it's that close. Yeah. I mean, honestly, in terms of driving, and I, I say this with no disrespect to either of us, you are a more skilled, responsible driver. I am a more skilled daredevil driver, <laughs> you know, cause I, I, uh, 
I do my own stunts. Well, sure. So maybe we could, uh, maybe when this is coming up, we could, uh, we could build something because listeners, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, uh, you guys probably have some experience and some tips and tricks for us. I'm, I'm going to get some more information on this and maybe see if we can follow it up. This is, uh, this is like the big Red Bull event, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a, that's a big deal. I mean, it's coming up. It's got to be coming up soon. It happens. End of summer, I think. Yeah. Or at least it did, did oh, last year. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. We better get our keisters in gear. I guess so. But uh, I wonder what the prize is. If the prize is just a lot of Red Bull, I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> that's right. Hopefully you get the Red Bull before you race, and that way uh, it's a little more, in, a little more intense. It's a, big, it's, a, it's a big time, though. They closed down uh, the street for it. So. I did not attend last year, so mm-hmm. um, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing what's going on out there. And so let us know if you have any experience or tips with soapbox derbies. And of course, of course, if your primary tip is, guys, don't do it, we will respect your opinion. <laughs> but I'm getting more and more into the idea of uh, seeing how fast I can go with or without wrecking. Oh, very well. That's always something to strive for. We could each build a car and race each other. <laughs> we just do that on our own. We, <laughs> we, don't, we, don't need any, we don't need any event. We don't need no stinking events. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, Scott, we wouldn't have the street closed down, so oh, that would complicate things. That's true. Just have to you know, trust the flagman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're looking for a flagman as well. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to check out more episodes about racing, uh, we have some stuff that is right up your alley or square in your lane. And please, please, please keep your eyes open for these Danbury racers. And if you do see one, tell us. We'd They're love to know there. about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, first, buy it. And then and then tell <laughs> us about it because uh, I'd love to know where the rest of these things ended up. Mm-hmm. And if you do buy it, because we are serious about this, uh, we will reimburse you gladly. Just send the bill via email to jonathan.strickland at howstuffworks.com. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. I'm sure, I'm sure he will. Heart of gold. <laughs> of course. Anything for the cause. <laughs> Anything for the cause. Oh man, we might be in hot water when he hears that one. But uh, if you are already on the computer, you want to hear more about these races, go ahead, check out our uh, previous podcast at our website, carstuffshow.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook where you can see uh, some of the things that we talk about every week, including stuff like this vintage ad for the Danbury Racers. And most importantly, if you have an idea for an upcoming topic, if you have some feedback, if heck, Scott, I don't know. There might be somebody who has some experience having seen this. Oh, you know, it's entirely possible. And if you are one of those lucky few or if you have a story uh, related to a similar event, we'd love to hear it. And maybe your fellow Car Stuff listeners would like to hear it, too. You can email us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, what's good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.